We are now in Acts chapter 12, verse 1, a very practical and pastoral message for the congregation today. Let me read these 10 verses and we'll pray and we'll get started. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, that's just kind of put in there. Just as you're reading along, verse 2, he killed James. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, just how earth-shattering that would have been to this congregation. And because he saw that being Herod, that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. This just happened to be the spring feast of Passover or the seven-day feast of unleavened bread where Passover falls within that seven-day period. And when he had apprehended Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Passover to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for Peter. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side. And he raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. So he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out, and followed him, and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel. But Peter wasn't sure whether he was dreaming, or this was actually happening. And when they were past the first and second ward, and they came out the iron gate that leadeth into the city itself, with open on its own accord... Then they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the Word of God. The title of today's very practical and pastoral message is Prayer That Works. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessings now upon this study. Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen my throat, give me clear voice, that I'm able to be articulate. And Lord, may the choice of words and the choice of verbiage, uh, be clear to our people, open our hearts to receive what is scripturally true. Forgive us for the times we fail you. Lord, speak to our hearts and make us more like the people you want us to be in today's message. We ask all this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's approximately eight years (coughs) after the resurrection. The economy was in recession, and there was a famine in the land. Money was tight. Jobs were hard to come by. In addition to all these things economically, the scenery had changed around Jerusalem as after the martyrdom of Stephen, it had become more and more prevalent to openly persecute the Nazarenes or the followers of Jesus. King Herod Agrippa had been given rule over Judea, by his boyhood friend that was now the emperor of the empire, a man named Caligula. Now, this was not Herod the Great. Herod the Great was actually Agrippa's grandfather. And this was not Herod Antipas, the one that killed John the Baptist. That would have been Agrippa's uncle. Uh, And Agrippa was a fairly new king, having only been on the throne maybe two or three years. And he was seeking to curry favor. I mean, every ruler wants to be popular with the people. And he was trying to curry favor with the Jews. And he found that the persecution of the Messianics gained him positive response 
from the other Jews. In verse 2, we learn of the martyrdom of James. And as I said a moment ago, I marvel at just how nonchalant that's put in there. But think about what that just said. James was one of the original 12. He would have walked with Jesus for the better part of three years. He was the brother of John, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. Jesus even nicknamed them thunderous men or the sons of thunder because of their boldness to engage. And even more than that, as you read the Scripture, you find out that out of the twelve, there was basically an inner circle. There was a group of four that accompanied Jesus in even rare circumstances, like with the healing of Jairus, rising Jairus' daughter from the dead. Only Peter, Andrew, James, and John were allowed to go with Jesus. Uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, not all twelve went, but, but Peter, Andrew, James, and John had gone up there. We know that at Gethsemane, as they went out to pray the night before Jesus' arrest, several of the disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were invited to go a little further with Jesus. So this was part of the twelve. This was part of the inner circle, uh, one of the two sons of thunder. And it simply says in verse 2 that James had now been beheaded by order of King Agrippa. Now imagine how that news would have shaken this early church. I mean, they would have been shaken with Stephen's martyrdom because they didn't understand. Quite frankly, they were trying to figure out how all this was coming about and how it would fall into place. They were expecting Jesus' return immediately. They were looking for the return of Christ from the Pentecost on. And and certainly they were looking for the, the promised kingdom of heaven on earth where the lion would lie down with the lamb and there would absolutely be justice worldwide and King Jesus would be ruling and reigning from the throne of David in Jerusalem. But that wasn't coming about. As a matter of fact, now there's persecution. They're being chased all over the world. So none of this made sense to this. But now after Peter, after, after James had been killed, it so pleased the Jewish leadership that Agrippa followed that up by ordering the arrest of Peter. And as the Scripture said, it just happened to fall during this week-long spring feast, what we would call Passover. It's actually a week-long feast of unleavened bread, and Passover falls within the constraints of that week. But since it was a high holy day, there was no capital punishment allowed at that period of time. So Peter awaited in jail. And Peter would have most likely been, now this is a, a, like a 125th scale model of Jerusalem at the time of, of 66 A.D. It's actually in a museum now there in Jerusalem. And if we go back, this is one of the sites that we want to visit. But this is uh, what the old Temple Mount would have looked like with what was called Herod's Temple. Uh, this is the eastern gate facing out across the, the Kidron Valley. And over here would be the Mount of Olives. This is Solomon's colonnade. This is the colonnade. This building over here was Antonio Fortress. This was the citadel for the Roman troops. It would be like the police station in the middle of town. It's most likely that Peter would have been in there in the basement as he was being held uh, for safety until the the holy days had passed. Verse 5 tells us that from the time of his arrest, the church of Jerusalem began diligent prayer that Peter would be released. But now they were coming to the end of the week. Verse 6 indicates that this was the last night. As a matter of fact, the next morning, Peter would be brought forth from the shackles and executed. But that night, this passage tells us, something miraculous happened. It says that an angel appeared in the jail and nudged Peter until he awakened. Then he told Peter to get up. And at the moment Peter began to get up, 
the chains fell off of his hands and feet, which had bound him to those Roman soldiers. Then the angel instructed Peter specifically, in great detail, we have in this account, to dress himself and to prepare to travel. Then the angel led the way, and Peter followed him. Now, verse 9 tells us that Peter wasn't even sure that this was really going on. He thought he might have been dreaming or seeing a vision. The door and the inner sanctum opened, then the doors to the outer sanctum opened, then the doors going from Antonio Fortress into the city opened and led him all the way out of the building into the streets of Jerusalem. The shackles had just fallen off of him when he got up. They didn't have to try to pick the locks or anything. They didn't have to try to pick the locks of the cell doors. The cell doors just opened as if you were watching a spooky movie or something, and he was just escorted out into the street, and then the angel disappeared. Well, Peter came to himself and said the first place he went was to Mary's home, the mother of John Mark. And he knocked on the door. It says that a young lady named Rhoda that was a member of that church came and answered the door and said, Who is it? It's Peter. Let me in. She was so excited when she heard Peter's voice and recognized this was Peter's voice that she left him standing outside and ran inside to tell everybody else By the way, this is where the humor comes in. You've got all these great men and women of God from that first church that had seen the miracles at Pentecost, that had seen many of the miracles performed in the days after Pentecost by the apostles, so they were well aware of God's miracle-working ability. They were in there praying for God to work a miracle, and then when that miracle had happened and news was brought to them, they told Rhoda, Leave us alone. Quit bothering us with this news that Peter's at the door. We're praying that God would release Peter. (laughs) We'll have some more fun with that in a minute. But let's look at four observations that we can take from this great prayer meeting, perhaps one of the greatest prayer meetings that's ever been held, that we can possibly uh, take some, some truths and apply to our own lives. Observation number one, Peter was in God's will the whole time. Why was Peter arrested? Was he jaywalking? Was it a DUI? Excessive speed? Bounced check? No, Peter was arrested for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was in God's will, and being in God's will took him to prison. So he was in God's will, in prison, and while in prison, he was praying to God for his deliverance. So even in prison, he was staying right in the midst of God's known will. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, whenever you find yourself in any kind of a predicament, take inventory as to why you are there. We're not going to preach about this subject today, but just in passing, let me make a couple of comments. Just because you're in the face of adversity does not mean that God is out to get you. You might be facing punishment for disobedience. For example, if your mother said, be home by such and such an hour, and you missed curfew, you might find yourself grounded for a week or two weeks. That's not God punishing you. That's your mother punishing you for disobedience. Different thing. It might be because of consequences of poor decisions. If if you had $100 in your wallet, and you went out and bought $100 worth of lottery tickets. And then that night you had no money to eat, nor money to put gas in your car, and you cry out, God, you're not being fair. Why are you punishing me? God is not punishing you. You're reaping the consequences of being an idiot. You took your last $100 and bought lottery tickets with them. And if you find yourself in a situation, and you're going, Lord, why am I in the midst of this? 
and you can recognize that it's not something that's a consequence of a stupid decision or a consequence of some outright disobedience to God's rules or God's commandments, then recognize that God just may be using you as an example to give Him glory in, through suffering. That's what James said in James chapter 1. When you find yourself in a predicament, you consider why you're there, and then if you recognize, I haven't done this by anything that my own account, then we are to count it all joy. Why is that? Because it's a far greater testimony to be able to say, give glory to God when times are difficult than it is to be able to give glory to God when times are good. I mean, a dog will wag his tail if you pat him on the head. But if someone like in Peter's situation can glorify God even though he has been unjustly arrested for doing nothing more than preaching the gospel, then you've got to recognize that God is using this as an opportunity to bring glory to his name. And recognize that staying in God's will is not always mysterious. Now, sometimes when you look for God's perfect will, uh, you go, it can be sometimes puzzling. But the vast majority of God's will is very clear for us to know. As a matter of fact, God's will literally means God's design or God's intention or God's good pleasure. And we've been given a whole book of God's will. It's got 66 different books within it, and it's called the Holy Bible. For example, it's God's will that you be saved. Peter said, God is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering with people, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance through Christ Jesus. So that's clearly part of, God, part of God's will. It's God's will that we remain sexually pure. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 said, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. It's God's will that we serve Him, present your bodies as living sacrifices. It's God's will that children obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's God's will that husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it in the Lord. It's God's will that wives submit to their own husbands in the Lord. It's God's will that parents discipline their children in love. It's God's will for you to only date other Christians because you're not supposed to marry a non-Christian because it's very difficult for two people to pull together when they're operating out of different playbooks. And it's also God's will that you work. Paul said that if a man doesn't work, then neither should he eat. Says that if a man doesn't provide for his own home, he's worse than a heathen and a publican. So there's a lot in Scripture that clearly spells out what God's will is. So it's easy for us to find out the vast majority of things we should be doing or not be doing. So when you find yourself in a situation, first thing, analyze it and see, am I here because I am out of God's will? Number two. They did all they could do, which at the time was they prayed. Verse 5 says, prayer was made without ceasing of the church of God for him. Now, there's a number of examples of prayer or lessons on prayer, and trust me, I've not mastered it. But there are some truths that we see in Scripture. One is found in Luke 11 where Jesus gives this particular example of a man that had unexpected guests show up in the middle of the night. Being a good host, he wanted to be hospitable, but he didn't have any food in the cupboards. So he went next door and knocked on his neighbor's door, was wanting to ask him for three loaves of bread so he could feed his guests. His neighbor cried out, hey, it's the middle of the night, go away, leave me alone. And he kept knocking and kept on knocking and kept on knocking. 
until the neighbor finally got out of bed and gave him the answer to his prayer or his request. What is that an illustration of? That's a lesson to us that we should be relentless in our prayer. Be specific about what you're praying for and then pray and pray and pray and pray. Don't just check the box one and say, that's done, I can move on. We see another almost parallel illustration given in Luke chapter 18 where a widow who didn't have a, a man to represent her in court, so she was going to the judge trying to seek justice with some mistreatment that she had experienced. And the judge, the Bible says, was, an un, was a corrupt man, didn't fear God and was just there for his own uh, purposes. But even this judge, this woman uh, would not go away, made request after request after request until even this unjust judge responded to her request and answered prayer. So again, the point is be specific in your prayer, be relentless in your prayer. These disciples had a serious problem that they could not handle. So they did all that they could do. They diligently, specifically, and unceasingly besieged God's throne in prayer. Observation number three. They were submissive to God's verdict. The church had complete faith in God's power and complete faith in the power of prayer and His ability to answer prayer. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been praying if they didn't think that it served a purpose. But they laid their petition out at Jesus' feet and not a one of them knew what the answer would be. Don't you imagine that they had been praying for James as well? Wouldn't you think that this same group of people that had a propensity to go to their needs in prayer would have been praying when James had been arrested? Yet for some reason, as we pass through here, we simply see this one verse, James had been beheaded and now Peter was arrested. We know that Peter's going to be released here. So for some reason, you had two men that were part of the original 12, two men that were both part of the inner four of the Lord Jesus' disciples, both found themselves in the same situation. You had the same group of people with the same hearts for God, praying for both of them, yet one wound up stepping through death's doorway in martyrdom, and the other was released for a period of time. Anybody have an answer as to why? I don't really, other than apparently James' work on earth was done. God has called us all to do certain things. And what God calls us to do, He equips us with the ability to do whether we think so or not. And when our time on earth is done, then the Lord will take us home. Until our work is done or we become unusable, then we are, as, as Spurgeon said, we're invincible, literally immortal. As long as you're in the middle of God's will, doing God's thing, man can't touch you without God's permission. I have no doubt that they were stunned when James was arrested and James was executed. But now here they were praying for Peter, and they were aware that God had the ability to answer the prayer in the way they had hoped. But they were also ready to submit to God's will in case the outcome was the same as what happened with James. Let me give you another example. This time we look to the Old Testament. We see three men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were walking right in the middle of God's will. As a matter of fact, it was because of their obedience and their stand for God that they found themselves facing the penalty of death. Let me ask you, did they lack faith? Not at all. But notice how they made their request to Nebuchadnezzar when he gave them a second chance to recant. Daniel 3 verse 16 says this, Nebuchadnezzar, even though you're the emperor, 
even though you're the king of kings right now on planet earth, we will not take care in how we answer you regarding this matter. If God wills it, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, be it known unto thee, O king, that God is still God. His will will be done, and we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now let me ask you, do you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wanted to live? I do. I think they had within them the same thing that we all have. We all have a survival instinct. That's why you pull your hand away from a hot stove or your heart race accelerates when you step into traffic and almost get hit by a car because we have this survival instinct that God put within us. Do you think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hoped that God was going to spare them? Well, I would assume so. I would assume that they wanted to live longer since God has put that within us. And do you think that they believed that God was able to spare them? Well, yeah, they say that in the verse right there. They said, our God, if he chooses, can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, God is still God, and we're submitted to his will regardless. That was the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. We talked about it briefly a week ago when Jesus poured out his heart before the Father and he sweat as if it were great drops of blood falling to the ground, leaving the imprints in that, that sand there in the area around uh, Gethsemane. And Jesus said, Father, if there be some other way, then let this cup pass from me, please. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That is submission. Obedience is one thing, but submission to whatever God's answer happens to be is another. Now, I love the honest astonishment of this first church. We talked about it a minute ago. These great men of God and women of God that had been there at Pentecost, that had actually seen miracles performed, and I'm not talking about Benny Hinn type of miracles where the legs get longer. I'm talking about unexplainable supernatural events that clearly corroborated that these apostles were there speaking on behalf of God. I, have, I, I find it funny that these men that were praying for God to deliver a miracle, that when God actually did deliver a miracle, and Rhoda answered the door, and then she comes in and says, Hey, Peter's at the door. They said, Well, don't bother us, Rhoda. We're praying for God to miraculously deliver Peter. So don't bother us while we're praying for this miracle by telling us that God has already performed the miracle. So what is that saying? I think it kind of should confirm or corroborate or encourage us. You know, every one of us go to our knees in prayer. And I don't think a single one of us have a doubt that God is capable of answering any prayer that we ask of Him. In fact, quite frankly, ladies and gentlemen, God does answer every prayer. The sad thing is sometimes, or sad thing for us is, sometimes God doesn't answer the way we hope He answers. But He answers every prayer either with a yes or no or wait. In fact, even Peter himself was astonished that this miracle had happened. And he'd been delivered from prison before. But we seem to, while we have great faith in God, we seem to become so resigned to not thinking that God's going to work the miracle. Folks, whether God works the miracle or not, God is still God, and God is able of working a miracle. 
And if it's his decision to leave us in jail to the point where we face execution, then at that point in time, you've just got to say, God, may your will and not mine be done. Observation number four. After you've got sought God's will, and this is probably the biggest point I want to make here today because it's something that we pay little attention to most of the time. After you've sought God's will and made sure that you're walking in God's will, and after you've prayed specifically and persistently, then work with all your might. I believe there's a reason that there was such great detail that went into this passage. It doesn't just say that the church prayed for God and God prayed to God and God released Peter. Actually, it does say that in Acts chapter 5. There was another occasion where some of the apostles were in jail and God miraculously released them, and that's all it said. And God released them from the prison, and the next day they were out in the temple court preaching the word of God once again. But this passage goes into great detail with the angel saying, Peter, get up. Now, wouldn't you just assume that Peter would have gotten up without it having to be said in Scripture? Are, 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 you, are you still with me? Okay, so here we are. Angel comes in. Peter, Peter, waken. Okay, Peter, get up. Okay, Peter gets up. Peter, put your shoes on. Maybe that goes without saying, but if I'm going anywhere, I'm going to put my shoes on. You don't have to tell me to do it. Peter, put on your cloak. Doesn't that go without saying? Then... As he began, then he said, Peter, follow me. They began to walk. The first door opened. The second door opened. Then the gate in the city opened. I would ask you, why the specifics? If God is God and God has this omnipotent power, God could have just raptured Peter out of the cell and into another location. He actually did that with, uh, what, with Philip after he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. So he's got that in his arsenal. The angel could have just, rather than arguing with Peter, should have just wakened him up, thrown him in a fireman's carry over his shoulder, and carried him out of the prison. That would have been quicker. God could have just levitated him and floated him out the open doors and into the city itself and dropped him down there. Why didn't God just do that? But instead, God released his shackles, which was something that only God could do. But then he said, Peter... You can get yourself off the ground. Peter, you can put your own shoes on. You don't need me to do that for you. Peter, you can put your own cloak on. You can do that yourself. Peter, you know enough to follow me. Ladies and gentlemen, the problem may have been too big for Peter, and that's where God stepped in. He was in jail. The people couldn't break in and overpower the military and rescue Peter. But they did do something. They did all that was in their power to do. They prayed, and they prayed diligently. Then God did His part. He did what was humanly impossible. He broke the chains, and He unlocked the doors. Clearly a miracle. God did only what God could do. Then God told Peter to do what was within His ability. Peter, get up. Peter, get dressed. Peter, follow. It didn't take a miracle to get up, to get dressed, and follow. Peter could do that his own self. That's what God expected him to do, and that's what God commanded him to do. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think would have happened if Peter had said no? What do you think would have happened if if, if Peter had said, Yeah, well, God, you knocked the, the shackles off and the doors open, but I'm not getting up. Well, I think what would have probably happened is Peter would have had his head chopped off the next day. But I think the point 
of all of the detail that's been given here is so we not miss the message. God does the impossible. Peter did that which was possible. And that's the way it is today when we face challenges in our life. God does what only He can do, but He expects you to do what you can do. Prayer that works. Pray as if it's all on God because it is. But then work as if it's all on you because you've got some responsibility to this equation. And there's nothing too hard for God. But for some reason, God chooses to use people to carry out His will in executing His plans. Let me give you an example. Noah. God had told Noah, I'm going to rescue your family because you're an upright, righteous family, cleaning your genetics and everything. And I'm going to flood the world going to be about 120 years. Meantime, I want you to build this ark. So let me ask you, who performed the miracle? Was it God or was it Noah? Nobody knows. It was God that performed the miracle. But did Noah have some responsibility in obedience and putting forth some actions to accompany God's commands and an answer to prayer. Yes. What about the killing of Goliath? We're all familiar with that. Probably one of the first stories we ever learned in vacation Bible school or Sunday school. We had this giant Philistine, almost 10 feet tall, had a spear the size of a weaver's beam. And we had this young boy, David, with a slingshot. By the way, it's not like those slingshots that we had when we were kids. This, these were deadly weapons. God was who destroyed Goliath, but God used David's physical activity in order to accomplish his plan. So let me ask you, was it God or David, or was it God working through David? That's the answer, God working through David. Let's look at another example. How about Gideon? We had the annual invasion um, Obviously, Joe Biden was in charge of guarding the border of Israel. 135,000 Midianites coming in, gonna, like locusts on their fields. God called this man from a small tribe uh, in Israel and called Gideon to 300 men to go out with pitchers and, and, and torches to defeat this band of invading Midianites? Now, God did the miracle because logically, in fact, they didn't even kill a Midianite. They just broke the pitchers, had their lights, blew their trumpets, and the Midianites killed each other in all the confusion. But God worked the miracle, but for some reason, God likes to harness His ability with ours and use us to the degree that we can say yes to accomplish His will. So ladies and gentlemen, after we've sought God's leading, after we've prayed for God's power and intervention, then put some shoe leather to your prayers. When Peter was in jail, he did all that he could do by praying. And God took care of what Peter couldn't do and released him from his shackles. God opened the prison door. Then God told Peter to put his own shoes on because Peter can do that himself. He told Peter to put on his own coat because Peter can do that himself. And again, for some reason, God felt it necessary to put that in the pages of Scripture because it was important that it be said when I would think that it would go without saying 
But again, the point is, God does what only He can do. He expects us to do what we can do. God does the impossible. He expects us to do what is possible. God does the supernatural. He expects us to do what is natural. So again, we pray as if it's all on God, and then we work as if it's all on you. Let me give you another example. The nation of Israel had just been delivered miraculously from 400 years in Egypt. You remember the culminating event? Egyptians had followed them to the Red Sea. God divided the sea. The the Jews walked through on dry land, got to the other side, looked back. The Egyptians were following, and God destroyed the most powerful military on the planet, supernaturally. Hand of God destroyed there in the midst of the Red Sea. Great celebration. Great singing and dancing and celebrating. Then the next thing you know as they're continuing on their journey towards uh, Mount Sinai, they're attacked by an ancient people that was their mortal enemy, the Amalekites. Yet this time, God didn't open the Red Sea and swallow them up. God didn't open the earth and swallow up the Amalekites. God didn't rain down fire from heaven and consume the Amalekites. This time, the battle plan was different. This time, we find that Moses went up on the mountaintop with Aaron and Hur and prayed without ceasing for God's hand of deliverance. And at the same time, Jacob, or excuse me, uh, Caleb and Joshua were actually in the field of battle with real swords and real spears and real shields fighting in hand-to-hand combat. Let me ask you a trick question. By the way, I just tipped you off. This is a trick question. Where was the battle fought? On the mountain or in the valley? Both. Where was the battle won? On the mountain or in the valley? Yes, both. Pray as if it's all on God. Then we put shoe leather to our prayers as if it's all on us. Consider Esther, another miraculous account. An evil secretary of state, also by chance an Amalekite, hated the Jews. And he had manipulated the emperor of the world to set aside a day where all Jews would be killed and all of their properties stolen. Well, what's the first thing that Mordecai and Esther did? They prayed. They fasted and prayed for three days. They, they, they laid their hearts out before God. And then there was action that accompanied their prayer. Esther actually had the boldness to go in and confront her husband about this ordeal. And then, of course, you all know how Mordecai, or or, or, excuse me, how Haman was set up and how he ultimately was judged. But then beyond that, the Jews were allowed the right of self-defense. And then when that day finally came where all the Jews were supposed to be wiped out, instead it became a great victory for God's people as they were allowed to defend themselves from the attacker. So let me ask you, was that battle won in prayer or with the spear and the sword and the shield? Yes, both. They prayed for God's deliverance, and then God instructed them to do what they could do. Let's consider another, Jesus feeding the 5,000. There in the hills of the Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, they'd come out and spent all day listening to Jesus' teaching. It got to the end of the day, and Jesus was continuing to teach His own disciples. And He said, hey, we can't send these people home hungry. Let's feed them something. They'll be so weak, they can't make it home. They might pass out and die. And the disciples said, we don't have any money. 
There's not any places around here to go buy food. And in fact, Lord, when can we do? He said, you guys go out and scrounge up what you can. Get that message. Don't you know that Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do? He had it under control the whole time. But he said, okay, you boys go out and do your best. Go out and see what you can dig up. They did their best, and their best labor resulted in one boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish. Their best labor they laid at Jesus' feet. Jesus blessed the work of their hands and multiplied it and fed 5,000 men plus their wives plus their children. And then when they collected the leftovers, there were 12 baskets left over. Folks, understand, God works through people. Many of His miracles, for some reason, He chooses to work in association with human action. And we should pray as if it's all on God because He is all-powerful. God's got the, the old song, the whole world in His hands. Well, it is. He's got the whole world in His hands. So we pray about every situation. God, why are we in this? Is this something that I'm doing myself? Have I brought this upon myself? If this is sin, I need to get it out of my life. But God, please deliver us from this great crisis that we happen to be facing as a family or as a business or whatever the case may be. Then you don't just leave it there. God expects you to get up off your knees and put shoe leather to your prayers. And that's how God works. God does the impossible, but He expects us to do the possible. That is prayer that works. Let me give you a couple other illustrations. And the reason I'm choosing these illustrations, because unbeknownst to you, these are actually several occasions that I've dealt with the past week. Within the past seven days alone, I have dealt with people within our congregation that have had different requests or different needs. And understand that you all don't know about any of them. You know why? Because it's by design. If somebody needs a little hand out because they're having problems making their bills, the church doesn't need to know about it. That's where the right hand doesn't know what the left is doing. We have them fill out a budget. We work with them. We want to make sure that we're not an enabler to bad behavior. We want to help them get through a crisis if we can. We have marital situations. We want to try to help with that. There's all sorts of things that go on that you all aren't aware of. And quite frankly, it's designed that way. I don't know if you'd want to have all of your meetings disclosed to the public. But what happens in my office is done in confidence. But let me give you a couple of examples of some things that we've dealt with this week. Let's say that you needed a job. First of all, is this in God's will? Is working in God's will? Well, that's pretty easy one, yeah. In fact, work didn't enter into the picture when Adam sinned. Work was already there. Before Adam ever sinned, he was instructed to keep the garden for six days and rest on the seventh. So work is something. It's a way that we honor God, uh, and we are supposed to work. So first thing we do, if we need it, we, we know that this is God's will. So we pray, God, please lead me to the right job. Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. I need to find the right situation. I know I'm supposed to provide for my family. I want to provide for my family. Lord, help me get a job. Then what do you do next? Go play video games until some employer's office calls you and offers you a job? No. Then you get up off your knees, you take a shower, you put on some work clothes, and you go looking for help wanted signs, or you survey the internet and find help wanted ads and submit job applications as you put shoe leather to your prayers trying to find the right job. 
You begin making calls and setting appointments for jobs that are not contrary to God's will. First of all, is working God's will? Yep, working is God's will. Uh, I quoted earlier that if a man doesn't provide for his own family, he's worse than a heathen and a public, in the Scripture says. So I know I'm supposed to work and provide for my family. Well, what kind of job should I do? Well, anything that brings glory to God. So I guess I can't be a, 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 a what, a... Uh, a, a pole dancer. In fact, there's not much demand for me as a pole dancer. I don't. Uh, I can't be a bartender. I can't be a drug dealer because none of those would not qualify as something that glorifies God. So anything in the line of work where I can provide for my family that glorifies God is something within the realm of acceptability. Then I start knocking on doors or making phone calls and trying to set out appointments. Here's why I bring this up. Literally had a person that we dealt with a family uh, last month and helped a little bit through Christmas. Came back and we we're helping them just a little bit more. Happened to make the, uh, ask the question, have you, apl- have you been out applying for jobs? Yes. Great. How many? One. (laughs) Folks, if you don't have a job, then understand you do have a a 40-hour-a-week job. And that 40-hour-a-week job is looking for a job. You're going to spend eight hours a day trying to find a job. And when you get a job, you go do that job and start paying your bills and taking care of your family. And hopefully your performance is good enough where you get a promotion in the business or perhaps you find a better job and then you do that job until you find a better job or perhaps save up enough money and start your own business. But we pray as if it's all on God. Then we get up off our knees and do all that we can do and we're supposed to do Uh, that's within our realm of of responsibility and doing. God does what He can do, but He expects us to do what we can do. Let me give you a question. Let me give you another one. How many of you would like to have a perfect home? We've got a lot of young people that need some mentoring, and and it's so sad, but that's where we are. And we're making some adjustments to work on that. But you know what? You pray, God, please heal my home. Amen. Then you get up off your knees and you start treat, keep treat, treating your wife like garbage. You neglect your kids. You don't spend time with them. You're always out hanging out with the boys or going to the golf course or something else. When you say, God, please heal my home, then husbands, what I would recommend you do, the first thing is immediately start courting your wife again. Treat your wife today with the same love and respect and honor that you did back when you were dating. Cindy and I have been married for 35 years. Every time we're together, every day we're together, I'm always trying to earn the next date. And the type of energy and effort you put into during the dating process to try to con this person into marrying you, and then the day after you get married, you stop trying is a, a sin against God. And that's on you. That's not God's fault. So yeah, you pray, Lord, I want you to heal my home. Then you work hard to be the husband that God wants you to be. You work hard to be the wife that God expects you to be. You take care of your kids by spending time with them. Not, and Edmund especially. We are a, a culture that believes we can just buy our children affection with, with gifts and, and shiny objects. Your kids don't need that. They need you, Dad. 
They need to learn to work from you. They need to learn how to live the life of a godly man from walking with you and watching you. And folks, you won't lecture your children into heaven, I can assure you, but you can lead them into heaven by showing the reality of what it means to be God's man or God's woman. And if you get nothing else but that from today's message, then it was worth you coming. You have a hard time making ends meet, so you pray. God, don't have enough money to survive. Please help. Then what do you do? You go inside, turn on 300 channels of cable with your Cinemax and HBO. And after you've surfed the channel for a couple of hours, you get bored. So you pick up your iPhone and you start surfing through Amazon because shopping always puts you in a better mood. Then you drive to 7-Eleven, buy a pack of cigarettes when nobody else from the church is around for $10 a pack. You stop by Starbucks on the way home to buy an $8 latte. You go home, grab the mail out of the mailbox, you realize that the mortgage is due and you don't have the money to pay it. And then you say, God, why are you doing this to me? God's not doing that to you. Pray as if it's all on God, whatever you're dealing with. But then you do what you can do. You do the work. You put in the work as if it's all on you. Because God will do the miracle. God will handle things that we can't. God is very capable of handling things which are impossible to us. But He expects us to pick up our coats, to get dressed, to put our shoes on, and to follow Him. That is the secret of this thing that's called life. You pray about everything. You make sure that you're walking in God's will, seeking God's will, making sure that whatever trouble you're facing is not because of your own stupidity or outright disobedience. Then after praying, or I should say while you're praying, you work with all your might. That is how you learn to live a life that glorifies God. By the way, this scenario goes all the way back to here. This is the original impossible thing that we couldn't do. The Bible tells us that God created man different. We were created in His image and likeness. We have the ability to, to love Him by obedience. We could choose to worship Him. We could fellowship with Him. We don't just operate out of habit like a dog is trained. But God didn't force Himself on man. Matter of fact, even the first man, Adam, was given a choice. Said, Adam, there's one tree you can't eat of. The day that you disobey me, now you know that which is good. But the day that you disobey me, you'll know evil as well. In fact, Adam, the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Well, we know the story. Anybody that's been to VBS or Sunday school, we know that Adam did disobey. By the way, we would have all done the same thing, as much as I'd like to think we wouldn't have. Half the time I think about how I want to punch Adam in the face the first time I see him. But the reality is every one of us would have been just as guilty if we were in the same predicament. But Adam didn't die physically that day. Adam lived another 930 years. So was God wrong? No. Adam died that day. Adam died spiritually. Isaiah tells us that our sins and trespasses separate us from our holy God. And if you die in a condition where you are separated 
from our holy God, then you will spend eternity separated from God in a place that was not created for us. Matthew 25, 41 says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. If you go there, it will be because you are an intruder. It wasn't designed for you. But if you die in your sins, that is the only outcome to spend eternity separated from God. Because of that, our Creator stepped into creation as man. And because He was God, who as man could give His life, and as God, the Creator of all, had the righteous account that could atone for all of His creation, Jesus willingly paid the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus didn't owe that. Jesus had committed no sin. But Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And Jesus died on our behalf. Three days and three nights, what was customary. The Jews believed that the soul, in fact, that's why you see this up here. That's called a soul vent. The Jews in their culture believed that the soul hung around for three days and three nights before it finally departed to uh, uh, the afterlife. So three days and three nights, it was certain that Jesus was dead without question. And after three days and three nights, Jesus, who stepped into the jaws of death, defeated death, paid our debt in full as the wages of sin is death, but the chains of death could not hold him because the price that he paid was sufficient to atone for the sins of the world. So Jesus did the impossible part 2,000 years ago. And he said yes to each and every one of us. There's got to be a point in time before we breathe our last breath that we willfully and intentionally bend our knee to Jesus as Lord and say yes to Him. 